0: Here at the dawn of the new year 2018, it's appropriate we talk about monsters. 200 years ago on January 1st young Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus was published in the centuries since there have been many all too real monsters even now monsters walk among us leaving horror in their wake some are seemingly normal individuals who suddenly shoot up an elementary school or rain down a hail of bullets from a Las Vegas hotel window other monsters today are leaders of nations Vladimir Putin of Russia, who denies the horrific assassinations of his political enemies with wide-eyed protestations of innocence. Rodrigo de Tarte of the Philippines, who, in contrast to Putin, openly boasts of killing four men with his own hands and who launched a bloody nationwide purge in the streets of anyone suspected of selling or using drugs. But these men pale in comparison to the monster known as Saddam Hussein, President of Iraq from 1979 to 2003. In an ongoing effort to hold power during his 24-year reign, Hussein plunged his nation into a wholesale slaughter of medieval proportions. When he was finally overthrown, his hands were wet with the blood of an estimated 1 million of his own Iraqi people. Dead from torture, execution, senseless wars, poison gas, and outright murder. My name is Diane Ladley, America's ghost storyteller. And this is hysteria. It's history that lurks in the shadows. Like so many monsters, Saddam Hussein was born into a world without mercy. His clan lived off piracy along the Tigris River with an ultra-violent, ultra-macho culture. His mother, deeply depressed by the death of her older son and the mysterious disappearance of her husband days before Saddam's birth, couldn't bring herself to love or nurture her new baby. As a young boy, he was brutally beaten by a harsh stepfather and learned how to shoot, torture, and kill men without hesitation. Eventually, he ran off to live with his uncle in Baghdad. The teenage Saddam revered his uncle and was profoundly inspired by his devout Sunni religion and ardent nationalist politics. He joined the Ba'ath party, which believed in glorifying all things Arab and unifying the Arab nations into one state. Unfortunately, this meant that others living there The Kurds, Maronite Christians, even other Muslims, like the Shiites, would have to go. At age 22, Saddam was part of a botched assassination attempt on Iraq's President Qasim. With a bullet in his leg, he fled to Egypt, where he attended law school and bided his time. Iraq was aflame with political revolutions, and four years later, he returned. He was imprisoned for a while, but continued to build his political power base even behind bars. Finally, in 1968, he joined in on a coup that overthrew the government and became deputy to the president. But Saddam was the power behind the throne. It was his name the people cheered when he brought electricity, paved highways, good healthcare, education, and jobs to the masses. He achieved this by nationalizing Iraq's oil industry putting untold billions of profit in his hands. During this time, Saddam also assembled powerful paramilitary groups utterly devoted to him. His People's Army mercilessly used torture, rape, and assassination to protect their beloved leader from any opposition, real or imagined. In 1979, Saddam forced the president to retire and stepped into the position himself. His first act was to call a meeting of his fellow Ba'athist members. They listened in dawning horror as 68 names were called out and the men dragged out of the room one by one. Then Saddam handed rifles to surviving members and personally joined them in gunning down 22 of their begging comrades. The remaining 46 so-called traitors were hanged. Saddam and his secret police knew the power of making a death as terrible as possible, not only for the victim, but for survivors. Force a son to shoot his father in the head, demand a beautiful wife have sex with the prison guards on the promise of releasing her husband, only to have them demand her daughters as well. They'd set the prisoner free but behead his wife and daughters in the market square, naming them prostitutes. The former prisoner would live with the horror and guilt for the rest of his broken life. Countless horrific practices like this spread fear across the country and silenced critics. Tales of fingernails extracted, eyes gouged, genitals shocked, and heads drowned in tubs of pig's blood or piss. Simply leaving the house in the morning for a work, school, or the mosque carried the risk of never being seen again. Vanished, plucked from the street by Saddam's secret police. But even worse was when they were returned. One newspaper account reported... Fifty-seven boxes were recently returned to the Kurdish city of Sulaymaniyah by the Iraqi government authorities. Each box contained a dead child, eyes gouged out and ashen white, apparently drained of blood. The families were not given their children, were forced to accept a communal grave, and then had to pay 150 dinars for the burial. bodies of the lost were commonly dumped at the front door of their home, minus their heads. The mystery of the missing heads was finally solved when an American soldier reported finding a hut out in the country. Inside, it was filled to the roof with a pyramid of decapitated heads, the oldest on the bottom almost skulls, the newest on the top still fresh, bloody, and black with flies. Even Saddam Hussein's cabinet ministers, the most fanatically loyal members of his Ba'athist party, were not safe. When Saddam didn't like the advice that Health Minister Dr. Riyada Ibrahim gave him, a patient at his hospital mysteriously died from an overdose of the wrong medication. The doctor was held responsible and fired. When interviewed, he told the local news he was glad that he got away alive. He was promptly arrested, and pieces of Ibrahim's dismembered body were delivered to his wife the next day. The dungeons where these atrocities and executions took place were officially given innocent-sounding names. Hotels, sports complexes, hunting lodges, resorts, even palaces. But every Iraqi man, woman, and child knew these places were actually terrifying doorways, that inexorably led down to the abyss of hell. Passers-by could feel the despair radiating from the walls, its icy, cold shadow leeching away all hope, even in the hot desert sun. On March 20, 2003, a coalition of American and allied forces invaded Iraq, claiming Saddam had acquired nuclear weapons in violation of a United Nations Accord. Three weeks later, the Iraqi military and government collapsed, and the war devolved into guerrilla fighting and terrorist actions that still go on today. Instead of constructing new forts, the coalition allies simply moved into existing military camps, including the palaces, hunting grounds, hotels, etc., so conveniently furnished to house them. At first, the soldiers and civilian contractors had no idea of the unspeakable cruelties that had occurred within the walls, the obscene history. They only knew there was a lurking sense of wrongness that hung heavily in the air, dark demons whispering in their ears, bringing nightmares and sleeplessness. They heard the laments of tortured spirits who walked behind them during long, eerily silent patrols, making hardened, tough-as-nail soldiers nervously glance over their shoulders and jump at shadows. One such haunted place is Forward Operating Base Endurance, formerly known as Qiyara Airfield West, or Saddam Airfield. It's near Mosul in northern Iraq. During Operation Iraqi Freedom, it was bombed into dust by coalition forces, Thirty high impact craters had all but obliterated the runways, control tower, and weapon storage areas, some striking thirty feet deep, one hundred twenty feet in diameter. The Iraqi soldiers stationed there were undoubtedly blown to bits. When the Americans took over, Camp Endurance was considered to be suitably named, as it was one of the least desirable bases to be stationed. A Marine named Chad had the misfortune to be relocated to Camp Endurance in 2004. At the time, Endurance was no more than a few tents, two bombed-out airplane hangars, and an old concrete bunker. But things looked up when Chad met Sarah from the mechanics unit. A relationship bloomed out there in the blasted-out Iraqi desert. Their superiors looked the other way, but privacy was an issue, and the concrete bunker was the solution the hallway from the blast door slanted down 20 feet and opened up into a 10 by 10 foot underground area right outside the blast door was a power generator when the door was closed the loud noise of the generator was muffled but if some snoopy officer opened the door the noise would suddenly be a deafening roar giving the lovers time to get decent and play innocent Chad even fashioned a bed for them from the unit's supply of lumber. But something happened to stop the bunker visits cold. On the second night in the bunker, Sarah shook Chad awake. He started to speak, but her hand covered his mouth. She whispered in his ear, There's somebody in here with us. Chad figured some hedgehogs had found their way in down there. That part of Iraq is riddled with them. But then he heard it. Heavy, booted footsteps moving over the concrete floor without hesitation in the pitch black. Alarmed and angry that one of his buddies had somehow snuck in to give them a good scare, Chad fumbled for his flashlight and turned it on. But the bunker was empty. Neither of them had heard the roar of the generator get suddenly loud, so they knew no one had opened the door. Chad felt the tiny hairs on the back of his neck rise up. But he still blamed it on hedgehogs. The next night, desire overcame any nervousness about staying together in the bunker. They fell asleep in each other's arms. But Chad awoke hours later, his nerves already frozen with fear. He distinctly heard a voice whispering over in the corner of the bunker. To his horror, he heard the same heavy, booted footsteps walk across the floor, heading straight for the bed. Chad shook Sarah awake, then dived for his flashlight and snapped it on, pointing directly at the sound of the footsteps. the light revealed no one there. Again, the blast door was firmly shut just as they had left it. On the third night, Sarah announced aloud to whoever or whatever it was that she was not in the mood for any fun stuff, so quit walking around because both of them seriously needed some sleep. Chad teased her a bit and they laughed, convinced that there was a natural explanation. But again, in the dead of night, Sarah shook Chad awake. Together they sat in total darkness, barely breathing, listening to whispers coming from the far corner. Two different voices this time. Then the footsteps approached the bed again, deliberate, heavy boots in the blackness. It walked right up to their bedside and stopped for long, paralyzing moments. Suddenly, the whole bed violently shook, nearly leaping off the ground with the force of it rattling them both. It was followed by a tremendous clang as if a huge metal plate slammed into the concrete floor with inhuman force. Panicked, Chad fumbled for the flashlight to turn it on. But like before, the bunker was empty. The blast door still closed, and there was no sign of anything that could have made that ear-shattering metallic crash next to them. That was the last night Chad and Sarah spent in that bunker. They may have been lucky. It sounds as though the ghosts were working themselves up to committing serious vengeance on two American soldiers in that pitch-black bunker at Camp Endurance. Many reports of paranormal encounters are coming out of Camp Liberty. Situated northeast of the Baghdad International Airport, Liberty, together with its twin Camp Victory to the immediate south, is one of the largest U.S. overseas posts since the Vietnam War. And near the center of the camp is Saddam Hussein's breathtaking Al-Faw Presidential Palace. The Al-Faw Palace sits like a shining white lotus flower, floating in a lake of pristine aquamarine blue waters in the desert, giving its nickname the Water Palace. It's huge, almost half a million square feet, with 62 elaborately decorated rooms and 29 bathrooms of stunning opulence. Dotted on man-made islands around the palace are elegant Roman-style villas, reachable by party boats that used to operate all hours at the convenience of its guests. Those guests were Iraqi elite, stars of the bath party or visiting dignitaries. They were racetracks, horse stables, idyllic forests of date groves, a zoo, pools, and so much more. The lake was stocked with rare species of sport fish, including an enormous, specially bred fish called the Saddam Bass. The palace dazzles and amazes with its wealth. White marble columns, gold Arabic script, fabulous crystal chandeliers. But looking closer, you see the marble is really gypsum. The gold is brass. The chandeliers are glass and plastic. And anybody who knows construction wonders. How the hell is this place still standing? The Alpha Palace commemorates those who died in the far southern Alpha Peninsula during the Iran Iraq War of 1980 to 88. Half a million people died on both sides in what was arguably the most depraved, amoral war between nations for the past 40 years. Saddam released massive clouds of mustard and sarin nerve gas on soldiers and citizens alike, killing 10,000 with a single breath. Iran responded with even greater atrocity, marching rows of Iranian children as young as 12 years old into minefields. They were wrapped in blankets to keep their body parts together for easy burial after the explosions. The Iranian fanatics hung plastic keys around each child's neck and instructed them to use the toy key to open the gates of paradise when they arrived. All those deaths were for nothing. The war ended in a draw. To honor those who sacrificed their lives, Saddam commissioned the Al-Faw Water Palace to be built in Baghdad, far from the Al-Faw Peninsula where they fell then built towers, walls, and a security surveillance system to keep families of the fallen and other rabble out of their beautiful resort. That year, a severe drought had decimated crops across the region, threatening famine, yet Saddam didn't hesitate to use precious water resources and shut the entire city's water supply off for three days to fill the new man-made lake. Just imagine the outrage if President Donald Trump shut down the water to New York City for three days to fill his new swimming pool. But that's exactly what Saddam Hussein did. And no one dared say a word. Those few who did were never heard from again. Prison labor built the al Palace. It's believed their bodies lie at the bottom of the lake, chains still on their ankles, food for the prized sport fish. Saddam's sons, Uday and Kusei, had their own private villas on islands out on the lake. Uday, especially, was notorious for indulging his sadistic pleasures of rape, torture, and murder. And afterwards, water skiing! It certainly would explain the numerous reports of haunted activity around the lake. American soldiers stationed there frequently report uneasy feelings at certain places around the camps. They've heard footsteps running behind them on the jogging track around the lake, but no one's there. Or they'll see people in the distance standing on the road by Saddam's palace inexplicably vanish before their eyes. Not all of the ghosts come from Iraq's past. One soldier reported two terrifying experiences at Camp Liberty. Late one night on his first tour, He was awakened from a deep, sound sleep by his dad screaming, He leapt from bed and stood, shaking and wild-eyed in the middle of his quarters. Standing there in the silence of deep night, he heard the distinct low sound of a mortar round exiting the tube out beyond the walls of the camp, a noise so soft he never would have heard it if he'd been asleep. He shouted to his buddies to the tent and dropped to the floor as the world exploded around them. No one was hurt thanks to his dad's timely warning, except his dad was back home, thousands of miles away, buried in the hometown graveyard for the past nine years. This same soldier had another unnerving encounter on his second tour. By then, the tents had been replaced with air-conditioned trailers, much nicer. But one night, he woke to the sound of his trailer door opening. By instinct, he reached for his pistol on the side table but paused when he saw an unfamiliar American soldier in full battle gear had wearily entered his room. Oblivious to him lying there, this unknown soldier set his rifle aside and sat right down on his bed. He felt the mattress sink under the soldier's weight, felt the utter exhaustion rolling off the man. He figured this soldier must have been so tired he had walked into the wrong trailer. And yet, there was something freaky strange about this soldier. A cold, negative darkness that sent ice shooting down his spine and set off every alarm bell in his mind. He reacted, lunging for his pistol and rolling out of bed. As he brought the gun around, the mysterious American soldier in full battle gear disappeared. I was at a ghost conference in southern Illinois when I met a man who had just come back from Iraq. He had attended because he desperately needed to confide in somebody who wouldn't think he was crazy. He requested anonymity, so I'll just call him Tom. Tom told me that one afternoon, he and another soldier were off duty, just standing around outside chatting. Suddenly, they were both surprised to see one of the new guys in their unit standing beside them, as if he'd been there for a while, just patiently waiting for them to notice him. He was dressed to go on patrol. Despite the creaking jangling noise that full battle gear makes, they hadn't heard him walk up. He asked if they would please do him a favor. In the shirt pocket of his dress uniform was a letter to his parents, they please mail it for him. They were a little confused. Why didn't he do it himself? But they wanted to make the newbie feel welcome, so they agreed to help him out and mail the letter. Without even saying thank you, the soldier turned and walked away. How rude. Screw him. They're not gonna mail his damn letter. He could do it himself. Two days passed, and Tom didn't see the soldier anywhere during that time. So he asked his sergeant, who told him the man had been shot and killed by a sniper while out on patrol. Saddened, especially since the guy had just started his first deployment, Tom asked, when did this happen? Two days ago, was the reply. Wow, Tom said, I must have been one of the last to talk with him that afternoon before he went out on patrol. You couldn't have, said his sergeant. He was on the morning patrol that day. Stunned. He scarcely heard the sergeant order him to pack up the soldier's personal effects to send back home. Later, as Tom was folding the shirt of the soldier's dress uniform, a letter fell out of the pocket. Tom bent to pick it up and froze. It was addressed to the man's parents, exactly as the dead man's ghost had told him hours after his violent death. In October 2004, ghost hunter and author Dave Goodwin turned in his EMF ghost meter for his rifle when his National Guard unit was called to duty in war-torn Iraq. He was stationed in Camp Victory in Baghdad. But soon his engineering team was ordered to Camp Redemption to upgrade the buildings there into a top-notch military detention facility. It would be a gift for when we eventually turned it over to the new Iraqi government. That expensive gift was meant as an act of contrition in America's attempts to redeem ourselves. For you see, Camp Redemption used to be called Abu Ghraib Prison. In 2003, tabloid pages worldwide were plastered with images of piles of naked Iraqi prisoners, hooded inmates standing on buckets with non-electrified wires connected to their genitalia and other atrocities committed by a small group of of American servicemen and women. The images shamed the honor of US forces and reignited resistance within Iraq as a rallying cry of outrage that inspires terrorists to this day. But long before then, Abu Ghraib prison was synonymous throughout Iraq for cruelty and torture. It was a symbol of terror that Saddam freely used to control the populace and crush all resistance, the grimmest of all Saddam's dungeons. Once captives saw the high, menacing gates of Abu Ghraib, even the most unflinching protester would break down sobbing, knowing their life was over. Situated about 20 miles west of Baghdad, Saddam's Torture Central, as it became known, opened in March 1970, capable of holding 4,200 prisoners. But at the height of Saddam's power, Abu Ghraib held 15,000 prisoners. That equates to about 40 people stuffed into each 13-by-13-foot cell. Those lucky few who survived Saddam's slaughterhouse at Abu Ghraib were gaunt, trembling shadows of their former selves. They told tales of savage beatings, humiliation, brutality, electrocution, starvation, thirst. They spoke of the bored pitiless guards who force-fed them shredded plastic strips just for fun. And in every cell block were giant wall murals of Saddam Hussein watching over their tortured despair with a broad, fatherly smile. In 1999, Amnesty International complained about the overcrowding and abuses in Abu Ghraib. This irritated Saddam, who responded by ordering a secret prison-cleansing drive using a satanic arithmetic, prison officials calculated the rate of executions needed per hour to bring the levels down to what the human rights group demanded. The gallows operated ceaselessly, day and night, and as many as 30 prisoners at a time were hung or gassed at Abu Ghraib with the tireless precision of a well-oiled death machine. Thousands of political prisoners whose only crime might have been a complaint about Saddam overheard at the officer school were systematically exterminated. Often their wives, children, parents, even cousins were dragged to the prison to suffer horrific deaths as human guinea pigs for the chemical and biological weapons developed by Saddam's pet mad scientist and fellow monster Ali Hassan al-Majid, better known as Chemical Ali. Three years after that mass cleansing of Abu Ghraib, the prison was full to bursting again. Heedless or ignorant of what happened before, President George W. Bush also condemned Saddam Hussein for the extreme human rights abuses at Abu Ghraib. This time, the dictator announced a general amnesty for nearly all the prisoners. He freed them. Reporters from the West were invited to witness the release at Abu Ghraib. The freed prisoners, skeletal, scarred and trembling, were met by their families and their reunions were nearly hysterical with joy. Saddam had obliged President Bush and his detractors. But within a month, his secret police swept up all the same people they had just released and Abu Ghraib filled up again. That month of freedom turned out to be just another gleefully sadistic move in Saddam's game of genocide against his own people. As Dave Goodwin and his National Guard team toured Abu Ghraib uh, Camp Redemption to plan its upgrades, they were filled in on much of the prison's violent history. To Dave's delight, the guide was also quite forthcoming about the otherworldly activity happening in the various buildings. It was a difficult topic to avoid since the entire place was, in his words, immersed in a surreal blanket of despair that was having an effect on the group's mood. The guide openly admitted that the oldest parts of the prison played tricks on the mind, that it had an energy all its own. There, in those dark places are where he and his staff see strange shadows and hear unearthly disembodied voices, especially in Saddam's death house, the execution chamber itself. Dave was surprised to hear this tough, no-nonsense kind of guy matter-of-factly telling them that this place was crazy haunted. Dave, being an avid ghost hunter, was fascinated. Seeing this, their guide offered them a rare opportunity a visit inside Saddam's death house. The one-and-a-half-story building inside the Abu Ghraib prison was perfectly average and unremarkable. Yet as they approached the gate, Dave could feel an undeniable dark presence emanating from the whitewashed block concrete, and he felt the unnerving sensation he described as a thousand unblinking eyes staring at him. The tiny hairs on his body stood straight up as they grew closer to the building, and the entire group fell strangely silent. Dave recalled only one other time where he had felt emotion of that magnitude. When he had toured the notorious Nazi concentration camp of Dachau. As the guide fumbled with the lock, he confessed that on one occasion he had been suddenly overwhelmed with the feeling that the thick iron door of the death house was going to slam shut behind him, locking him in there forever. It terrified him. He knew the feeling was irrational. He even had the keys in his pocket, but he just couldn't shake the disturbing mental image. It unsettled him even now, he admitted. The door opened and a cloud of cool, damp air, laced with the scent of rot, old blood, and decay, filled Dave's lungs. Fear, despair, and impending death resonated from the walls, emotions forever embedded deep within the concrete and mortar. The gallows was simple. Two trap doors, two nooses tied to iron beams, Two long drops into eternity. Below the gallows and down a short flight of stairs was the gas chamber. During the prison purges, the fateful sound of the trapdoors would have been as regular as clockwork, and the entire building would have reeked of acrid chemicals. No one spoke as Dave and his fellow engineers snapped photos, then gladly got out of there. It was much later when they all compared photos that they noticed something peculiar. Out of all the photos they had taken that day, both inside the buildings and out, only the ones from the death house were marred by strange floating orbs. They appeared there on all of their cameras. Dozens of orbs, unevenly lined up above and below both the trap doors. As if the energy from the condemned were reliving their final moments over and over on the gallows in Saddam's death house of Abu Ghraib prison. Like all monsters, Saddam Hussein and his two twisted sons were hunted down and sent to hell. Uday and Qusay were killed in a three-hour gunfight with US forces in July 2003. And in December that same year, the Lion of Iraq Saddam Hussein, was dragged out, cowering from a hole in the dirt near his birthplace of Tikrit. He stood trial for crimes against humanity and was hanged three years later. But in March 2015, someone broke into his tomb, intent on destroying it. But monster that he was, his coffin was empty. For more on Dave Goodwin's experiences with the ghosts of Abu Ghraib prison and to see his photo of the orbs in the death house, I highly recommend you visit his website, militaryghosts.com. Special thanks to Dave and all the other soldiers who provided their haunted experiences for this episode of Hysteria. This theory is written, researched, and produced by me, Diane Ladley, America's ghost storyteller. And now, for the new Dedications feature. Get it? Dedication? (laughs) A shout-out to Carol C., Lori K., and Lori W., fans who have kindly slipped me a tip by way of Patreon.com. Thank you, ladies. As a disabled woman trying to get by, your financial encouragement means the world to me. Not only will their names be enshrined as valued heroes throughout history, they'll also receive special rewards based on their level of support. What rewards, you ask? To find out, go to the Hysteri page on Patreon.com, the crowdfunding site for creatives. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com. And will you do me a really quick favor while your podcast app is open and take a second to rate this episode of Hysterie? Four- and five-star ratings are pure gold for podcasters. And next time you're on Facebook, come say hi to me. I'd love to hear from you. Just search for the Hysterie podcast page and send me a friend request. Then share it out to your friends so they too can enjoy Hysteria's creepy, true, and free ghost stories. And finally, thank you so much for listening to theory. It's history that lurks in the shadows.